Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Will was going to be on this show and um, Will had himself a Louisiana Saturday night. He did. He very much did. Um, he hopped on the call just as we're about to record here at 1030 Sunday morning. And well, well, the first thing he says, I could barely hear him. And I'm like, yep, Baton uh, Rouge got the best of him. He was at the Tiger Bowl. Will had himself uh, a good time enjoying an LSU victory on Saturday nights. So there will not be any Will on today's show. He will be back and good to go for Wednesday. But this will be a solo pod. It was strange Saturday in the SEC and not just because Will had himself a good time in Louisiana wouldn't strange if he didn't have himself a good time but a lot of strange things that happen that we'll be able to to dig into today to recap week seven so we're going to get to all the games no specific order today sometimes I'm like ah let's put the biggest game first something like that now we're not doing that today just we're going to go in whatever order I feel totally necessary because I think you could make a case that each SEC game that we saw on Saturday had a certain level of importance. Let's start with the CBS game, though. Tennessee fends off Texas A&M. Hand up, dead wrong. Uh, Tennessee scoring 35 points against that A&M defense. That was not in the cards. This game played out in such a strange way. Think about this. Josh Heupel, in five and a half years of being a head coach, so obviously two and a half now at Tennessee and three at UCF, he had never won a game scoring less than 30 points. On Saturday, Tennessee did that. Josh Heupel, in two and a half years of being at Tennessee, had never won a game after trailing at halftime. He was 0-9 in those spots. On Saturday, his team overcomes a halftime deficit, able to win that game. Josh Heupel, in five and a half years of being a head coach, had never had a first half with fewer than 38 passing yards, or I guess as few as 38 passing yards. On Saturday, Joe Milton did that. If there was ever a reason to believe that this Tennessee team, this Josh Heupel team, was different than the previous five that he had coached, this game provided that context, in my opinion. And I continue to love that Tennessee front. For them to be able to win a game like that, you're not winning a game 20-13, to 13, grind it out, smash mouth football, unless you know what you're doing on the defensive side. Tennessee, to its credit, absolutely did that. Tyler Barron and James Pierce, if you don't know who these guys are yet, uh, you should. You, you absolutely should. They're having all SEC-type seasons they are just always around the quarterback. And I'm not just like, you can look at the box score, you can find TFLs, you can find QB hits, you want to find hurries, pressures, whatever, that's fine. But just watch these guys. And it seems like they are always back there every single time making things happen. I couldn't believe that Max Johnson made it through this game fully healthy. And I know there was one, there was one point where he got his right wrist hurt, something like that, which I guess for a lefty quarterback, you think, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal, but taking the snap sometimes especially with a team that does like to occasionally go under center. You kind of wonder about that a little bit. Uh, he, he, he bounced back really, really well. Nobody mashes the buttons quite like Max Johnson as he's going down while taking a hit. And he had to do that uh, a lot. I mean, it, it felt like all second half, that's what he was doing. Just know that when Max Johnson and Texas A&M are backed up on their own goal line, crazy things are about to happen. 
bad things are about to happen for Texas A&M. Last week, the crushing safety against Bama. And this time it was D Williams taking that punt back to the house to be able to take the lead. You combine that with the two picks that he threw late to that Tennessee defense. I think pressure was, was definitely part of that. I have no idea why they didn't call that, that false start on the right tackle on that, that, that late pick as well. That was such a weird non-call. seems like that's just a, an epidemic across football as a whole. These tackles are getting off to early starts. Officials aren't seeing it for whatever reason. Also, face mask penalties. I'm, I might have a, a rant for this a different time. Just the face mask penalties that aren't being called in this sport right now. I'm just thinking to myself, what are what are officials looking at? <laughs> if, you, if you're not seeing the blatant face mask penalties and the amount of times we're seeing ball carriers go down and, and then signal to the official, you know whose side I'm going to take every single time a ball carrier tells, tells the official, hey, I can just, I just got face masked. As, a, as an official, I would be the guy in that spot every single time where I'd be like, oh, ball carrier just told me he went down via his face mask. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to listen to that guy. <laughs> I'm going to listen to that guy. Uh, that's not reviewable or anything like that. But, man, it just feels like they're missing these these calls left and right in those spots. And there was one, a big one in this game uh, where it felt like I can't remember who the Texas A&M defensive lineman was. I want to say it was Shamar Turner who looked like he had a whole piece of face mask and it was not called. But anyway, win for Tennessee, 13 consecutive home wins. We realized the last time Tennessee lost at home was that Georgia game 2021. I mean, think about that. Think about what we were talking about post Pruitt. How long is it take going to take to get Tennessee back? And, you know, it's, it feels like a year zero for, for Josh Heupel and all the, the roster turnover that they had to deal with. And we're looking up and it's 13 consecutive home wins. Despite what Gary says, in my opinion, I do believe Neyland is an incredibly tough place to play. I'm not sure Tennessee wins that game at a neutral site on Saturday with the things that they kind of struggled to be able to do. And I thought that home field advantage was very, very present. I would have loved to have gotten Gary's thoughts uh, after, I can't remember what radio show he went on earlier in the week. I, I was talking to one of my guys, I think it was, yeah, I was talking to Ben McKee about this with uh, with Tennessee and um, and talking about how Gary had come out and said that and Tennessee fans were, were none too happy. Not that they had a reason uh, to dislike Gary anymore, but that certainly added to the, add a little bit of fuel to the fire. I want to give credit to Tim Banks' defense before I say some critical things about the balls. That group is one of the most improved in the SEC. Hands down. It, it really is. And, and I thought coming into the Josh Heupel era as a whole that it was just going to be a weakness. And we need to just assume it's going to be that kind of week in, week out. Even against Florida, their worst game of the year, I still kind of looked at some of the things that they did in the second half. I'm like, that group is that group has things figured out and they look like they're just always in the right spots. They fly around the football. I, I, if I do that column soon, probably like the most improved units in the sec, I guarantee you Tennessee's defense is, is making the cut. You look at the yards per play allowed numbers, everything. They, they just, they are a very sound defensive football team. They can pressure you in unique ways. They like to be able to stun up front. They really feel like they're a, a, a tough, tough group to handle for for 60 minutes and for a group in my opinion that spends a ton of time on the field they always look fresh i don't know maybe, maybe that's just me having low standards for what i've typically seen for defenses that are complemented with an offense that likes to operate with tennessee's tempo but man that group just always seems like they are they are ready to go and in those right spots so i love that i still love the ground game it is still an absolute strength it looked 
great against a top 10 AM run defense. But I've got to say it, and this is going to sound harsh. Maybe some Tennessee fans will push back. I know that this isn't the takeaway from this game, but I'm out on Joe Milton. I'm out. I, I don't see it. I, I just don't. And I came into this season saying he's the most pl- intriguing player in the SEC. I think he and Spencer Rattler in that category. I think those two players have gone in very different directions in their progression, their development. Joe Milton was bad in this game. He, he was bad in this game. And I know Ramel Keaton, if he doesn't drop that 42-yard touchdown, maybe we're having a little bit of a different conversation. The numbers look different. But Joe Milton is benefiting so much from his surroundings. And I just don't trust him to string together scoring drives against decent power five teams. I don't. I, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure that little rollout TD pass that he had to Jacob Warren, that was, by the way, the only offensive touchdown of the game. I think that was based on the based on what they said on the Florida broadcast about how Milton had never had a touchdown pass in which he set his feet or he did in which he was on the move. My bad. I I'm pretty sure that rollout to Jacob Warren would have been his first touchdown pass ever in which he didn't set his feet, which is crazy to think about. It, it is really crazy thing. And that play, I don't think you would count that as some off platform throw or anything like that. It was wide open. It was scheme. I thought in this game, Hey, you know what? A&M just got torched by that Bama passing game. Surely we're going to see more of those opportunities. And credit DJ Durkin, they made some nice adjustments on the defensive side of the ball. What they were doing clearly was confusing Tennessee in the passing game. Tennessee didn't really take advantage of that. They didn't try that much, and it didn't look like Joey Halsley and, and, and Josh Heupel had a whole lot of faith to be able to tap into that part of the game. I don't think that's just a Brew McCoy thing. I, him being out, obviously it hurts. And some of the things that you'd like to be able to do outside with setting up bubble screens and stuff like that, you just can't do when he's not out there and his blocking that presence or even the ability that he has, his toughness with the football. You you miss some of those elements, but this isn't really about that for me. I, I think that, that Tennessee looked at this game plan and said, we still feel like even though A&M's run defense is really good, our best chance to win this game is to try and use our bevy of fresh tailbacks and hope to win a low scoring game. And we're not going to attack downfield. We're not going to try and pick on some of these corners that had rough weeks. And I can't say I blame them. That was probably the winning strategy. Maybe you would like to have some more of those designed runs for Joe Milton, but man, it's, it's another game with, without any completion of 20 yards. Milton only has five in four SEC games, which is crazy when you consider what this offense looked like last year. And the red zone interception was bad. It was really, really bad. A play in which Josh DeBerry drifts into coverage and Joe Milton just never sees him. Just never sees him. Locked in on him the entire time. Did that while holding a 14 to 13 lead. And look, that's the same exact guy who got torched by Bama in College Station last week. So that's tough. That, that's a really tough look. Aaron Murray pointed this out and I thought it was a fair observation. Joe Milton might have been a little bit too hype after he dropped the hammer on that run. You notice he did do that. That that was a a strength of his game on Saturday was finishing runs with authority. He did that on a play that knocked out Edron Cooper, a guy that I've loved what he has done in the middle of that A&M defense. And he was sidelined for the rest of the day. Bad, bad day for A&M defensive injuries. You lose Cooper. 
You lose Regis, you lose Nolan, the Tennessee native who got carted off the field. Really, really rough day for an emerging front seven. And it, it kind of puts into question what this team is going to look like moving forward after losing their third game. But I'm just out on, and I'm not out on Milton as a person or anything like that. I'll, I'll praise the the steps that he has done to be able to, to make those steps to, um, to, to understand his circumstances, to take on a leadership role. Um, I, I, I won't dog the kid for that. I, I won't, but I'm just out on thinking that he has upside beyond a game manager. And I don't even think he's a game manager yet. I don't, I really don't. He turns the ball over too much. And that coming into this year was supposed to be a strength of his because he had yet to turn the ball over in a Tennessee uniform before this season. But when you're starting and you're not playing garbage time reps and stuff like that, and you know, these games have uh, defensive coordinators who are trying to find ways to scheme against you specifically. It's, it's just different. Will he lose his starting job? Man, some Tennessee fans heard that and they just got really, really upset that I would bring that up after a win. Um, I don't think he's losing his job unless this really falls apart because He's done everything that Josh Heupel has asked him to do from a mindset standpoint. And I think just ideally, if Tennessee and Josh Heupel have it their way, they would rather have Joe Milton be a little bit more underwhelming and then go into the NFL and have a chance. And it's a better look probably for them, their coaching staff as a whole, with a year six guy like this, who's in his third opportunity as a starter, if he gets the, the the pro Tennessee pitch going into the next level. And if they're saying, hey, look, you know what? He's a project, but you do this, this, and this with him. They might say that. I won't believe it. And I know we're not supposed to write off quarterbacks on the show. We're not supposed to do that. I just think all the opportunities, all the circumstances around this, I just can't be in anymore. I, I can't, and I've waited, I've waited, and I've tried to be really patient, but I just don't see it. I, I really do not. I will not talk anyone into Joe Milton at this level or at the next level. I, I'm I'm not going to be that person who's saying, well, yeah, you know, you get him away from this system and maybe it didn't fit here and there. No, no. Mm -mm. Nope. Some quarterbacks get all the great surroundings and those teams win despite them. Tennessee is winning despite Joe Milton at this point. I think Tennessee fans, you you know it. Whether you want to admit it or not, that's a different story. And I'm not saying that it means that Nico should be in there. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But right now, this is your situation. Maybe Tennessee can turn into this team that all of a sudden starts winning all these games by scoring less than 30 points or something like that. I don't know. I just know that the Joe Milton experience that many expected has not played out in the way that they would have hoped. And you know what? That's that's okay, I guess. Like, It's not like he's a disaster. He's just not the player that so many people thought he could be. And when you're talking about a, a coach that has had nothing but top eight scoring offenses in his five years as a head coach, yes, we judge him by this standard. We're not used to seeing Josh Heupel quarterbacks be underwhelming. We're just not. Mackenzie Milton, Dylan Gabriel, Henning Hooker, like we're, we're used to watching these guys turn into stars and Joe Milton's not turning into a star. He's not, but good for Tennessee for winning a game in which 
it it had to win to to maintain this relevance because it beats the alternative. And that's the big thing that we talk about at this point of the season. Okay, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is a, a different reality than the one AM is experiencing. But go ask AM how big that would have been to be able to bounce back from Alabama with a win. And instead, AM's in a much, much different place right now as a program overall. Four and three. They brought this up on, on SEC final. AM has eight consecutive road losses, and that is second worst among power five to only Northwestern. That's bad. That's real bad. If you want to include 2020 and pretend that road games in front of uh, 25,000 people should count the same as a road game in front of 100,000 people, if you, if you want to do that, if, if that's the narrative that you need to go with, fine. Jimbo Fisher is 7-15 and 15 in road games, true road games at Texas a If you don't want to include that, because you're like, hey, that's not really a road game. Why would I treat that the same? Um, because I have eyeballs and I remember 2020 and those were not true road atmospheres. Um, if you want to exclude 2020, Jimbo's 3-14 and 14 in true road games at Texas a and 3-14. His best road win, 2018 South Carolina against a team that went on to win seven games. That AM had done nothing but dominate kind of before and after that. Yeesh. It shouldn't be this bad. There's no other way to say it. It shouldn't be this bad. And don't tell me if 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 your argument right now for AM getting left off the hook from national scrutiny, you don't want to see them getting dragged through the mud. You think Jimbo Fisher is is in a tough spot right now. If, if your default is, well, the injuries, mm -mm. nope, not the way this works. Not the way this works when you recruit at the level that they do. You cannot go on the road that consistently and look overmatched. You just can't. Even when Jimbo decides to try and right the wrong of the Bama game and not be conservative by punting the ball on fourth and one and plus territory uh, in a game in which you're going to need to score touchdowns to win, he has his quarterback trip over the center, fall just right there instead of even having a play attempt to be executed. It was that kind of day. It was that kind of day. They, they got to find ways, and I know I've been high on Bobby Petrino in, in this offense. They, they still need to find better ways to get Max Johnson out of harm's way or else he's not going to make it through this season. I was amazed he got through this game. He's not going to make it through this season if that's going to be the mindset, if they're not going to have running backs and pass protection, if they're not going to be able to, to find ways to get quick hitters on the outside, I, I don't know what that that exact offensive blueprint looks like. It's probably more Anaya Smith on the perimeter, getting Evan Stewart some of those shorter touches near the line of scrimmage, getting him on the drags, whatever. They need to find ways to protect, Ma to protect Max Johnson or else this could be a 6-6 six and six type season in very, very easily. But it's as simple as that. A&M is in college football hell. They're stuck. I don't know how you get out of it. It ain't $76.8 million. It's not happening. It's not happening. Don't try and talk it into existence. It's not happening. You got the bye week. Home against South Carolina. At Ole Miss. Home against Mississippi State. Home against Abilene Christian during Cake Week. Yes, it's Cake Week, not Cupcake Week. And then at LSU. You look at that and you think, eh, 
that bad of a five-game stretch. I think they, they kind of had a front-loaded schedule. I do. But is there a guarantee that A&M is even going to get back to earning eight and four jokes? Nope. Nope. Especially if those defensive injuries are are bad. And again, TBD on that as of this recording, um, no official updates. Crazy. Yeah, Jimbo Fisher did not want to, to speculate widely on those. But that looks like the strength of that group. And if all of a sudden they're dealing with depth issues, that is a major, major problem as we saw play out last year. All right, let's move on to the game that was at the same time. Florida did it. Florida did it. Hats off to Florida and that Wednesday night sleep that I'm just guessing that they got. They hit the over on seven and a half hours of Wednesday night sleep. Uh, go back to the preview pod. That's a joke from there. Gators were awake in Columbia. They were awake and, man, they showed up ready to go early. They showed up ready to go late. Florida had lost 17 in a row when trailing by 10 or more in the fourth quarter and no more. Huge, huge statement to be able to come back from down 10 in the final five minutes. Um, it didn't matter that the defense was mostly on its heels all day. They got that late stop and then boom, little Mertz magic. I'm not sure that's going to become a thing, but stay with me on that. Little Mertz magic with the late touchdown pass to Ricky Pearsall. Some would say shades of Doring's got a touchdown. Dari definitely said that on SEC final. I'm stealing that from him. A little bit of that. A little bit of that. There was a moment in this game when I knew Graham Mertz was feeling it. I'm not saying that I predicted that he was going to come back from downtown in the final few minutes and have the day that he did, wherein he threw for over 400 yards. But the moment when I thought he is dialed in, Florida's down 14 to 13, middle of the second quarter. They're running pistol, fake it to the back on a play action. I assume that Mertz is about to dump it off to Eugene Wilson, the electric freshman, the emerging freshman, who is basically running parallel to, to the line of scrimmage, kind of like five yards ahead of him. It looks like one of those typical Napier system throws, high percentage throws. God, I don't need to hear any more about Graham Mertz and Bo Nix and their high completion percentage from Pat McAfee. Miss me on that. Okay. Don't need that anymore in my life. I get it. We get it. Let's get the average step to target on some of those. Stores. So with that context and knowing how much Mertz likes to be able to, you know, stay within himself, stay within the system, do the things that Billy Napier is asking. I'm assuming, and I'm sure a lot of Florida fans watching this are assuming that, that Graham Mertz is about to dump it off to Eugene Wilson, let his guy try and go make a play in space. Maybe he picks up six, seven yards, something like that. But instead, Mertz uncorks the deep ball. The second he did that, I thought, wait a minute. That's not the Billy Napier system right there. That is not. Mertz either in that moment is seeing a dude wide open streaking downfield and there's some sort of coverage bust with, with, like with South Carolina. You can't really rule that out with how much they have struggled to cover this year. Or alternatively, this is the extremely rare instance where Graham Mertz is just trusting his guy to go make a play way downfield. And it was the latter. It absolutely was. Khalil Jackson, about 47 yards downfield, makes an unreal diving catch. And if you saw the reverse replay of that, of how he like contorted his body with that final step as he's diving into that catch, one of the best plays you, you'll see a receiver make in that spot. And then he makes a touchdown grab on the very, very next play. Heck of a drive. For a guy that uh, first career touchdown year four at Florida has probably been like, man, I don't know 
what the depth chart is going to look like here, but a guy that has been able to, to stick with things um, in that offense. And it was a big play. Career high in passing for Graham Mertz. He looked excellent. He, he was awesome. I will give Billy Napier credit for this. Remember how I said kind of throughout the offseason with that decision to go after Mertz in the transfer portal, how this had better be, for Billy Napier's sake, a case in which you know something that we don't. That's the only way this ends up looking good for Billy Napier because it was an underwhelming decision considering what we thought the market was in the transfer portal. We're talking about why didn't you get Devin Leary? Why weren't you able to go to Coastal and get a Grayson McCall? Why didn't it work out with somebody that was more respected in the portal? Why did you have to settle for Graham Mertz? Man, the guy has been there, – there's no world in which – you're doing SEC quarterback rankings, and that guy is 14th like he was coming into the season. We can say that with, with certainty. Even in the Florida losses this year, I haven't come away from it thinking to myself, wow, Graham Mertz held him back from winning that game. I thought he was put in some tough spots, obviously, against Utah, against Kentucky, and maybe a really, really great quarterback would have been able to, able to overcome some of the things that he was working against, a run defense that didn't feel particularly motivated, playing from behind an offensive line that doesn't really pass protect particularly well. Maybe a great quarterback would have been able to overcome it, but it certainly wasn't, oh man, they lost this game because Billy whiffed on bringing in Graham Mertz. I, I am, I'm really impressed. I'm really, really impressed. I thought he was kind of the reason that they were able to show poise in that spot late and come back and win. Cause obviously the defense wasn't particularly good and slowing down Spencer Rattler. Ricky Pearsall is, I'm going to get out ahead of this take and I need Florida fans to prepare for this because it's not disrespect, but Ricky Pearsall is probably going to get left off of first team all SEC because of how good receiver looks in the conference this year with Malik Neighbors, with Luther Burden. I know that he had a quiet day. We'll get to that later. Xavier Leggett. Those guys are having insane seasons, and they look awesome. And they're probably going to sweep those first-team All-SEC honors. And there, there are probably a ton of Florida fans saying, well, how can you not have Ricky Pearsall? I, I hear you. <laughs> in a normal year, Ricky Pearsall is having himself that first-team all SEC type season. He has turned into a remarkable player. And don't let anybody tell you that he's just a slot guy. He's just a gadget. No, no, no. That guy plays bigger than he is. He plays so well downfield. And the things that he has done to provide stability for that offense is huge. It's absolutely huge. Like if he were to go down with an injury, and I'm not wishing that, I hope I don't speak that into existence for the fans, not trying to do that. But if he were to go down, that would be one of those Injuries where I'd say, man, I think he's one of the most valuable players in the SEC. I, I really, really do. He has become so freaking good, so fun to watch, a nightmare in single coverage. Credit to any team that can prevent him from really taking over. He's going to get his. It's just a matter of time. You know who's so bad, though? South Carolina's defense. It's a train wreck. I thought when Beamer had that that mid-game interview with Alyssa Lang, who we're going to have on the pod this week, and we'll probably talk more about this game. I thought Beamer was going to drop an F-bomb. He looked that mad. I, I thought he was going to curse in the post-game, too, when he's talking about the lack of defensive execution. Maybe by now, that minute, 10-second clip, whatever it was, has, has made the rounds. He's basically saying, hey, this isn't on the coaches. And 
we can call these great pressures and have guys in the right spot. But if guys aren't going to listen to us with a play call, or if they're not going to be able to physically execute and as Beamer said, do their freaking job, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, I, I get that. I totally get that from a coach's standpoint. Um, I don't know. <laughs> there's also the element of, do they just not have enough talent on the defensive side of the ball? Is is that a basic way to look at this? South Carolina fans, tell me if I'm crazy for thinking this, but man, why is it so difficult to find anybody that can look the part in single coverage? Why does it look like that's a, a disadvantage every single time? Why does it look like quarterbacks feel so comfortable and confident and they step into throws like the one that I was talking about earlier with Mertz? Why does it look like they never get that sense of uneasy that... <laughs> I mean, even watching Spencer Rattler, who has made these great strides in his career, he has a handful of these moments in games where he looks really uneasy and he's kind of drifting. Like, South Carolina doesn't do that to anybody. They just don't. And, man, like, it's such a far cry from the group that we saw in the first half against Georgia. Remember that? Throwback Thursday. Remember when we saw South Carolina allow three points in the first half to Georgia in Athens. And they're, they're getting after Carson back and everybody's dogging Bobo. And we're like, whoa, South Carolina, they are flying all over the place. They're ready to go. I didn't even really think that they were the reason that they lost to UNC. I thought they did a lot of things to kind of frustrate Drake May. But man, it's been so bad since then. They're allowing... Since the the start of the second half against Georgia, they've played 14 quarters of football. They're allowing more than nine points per quarter, about 38 points per game, if you average that out over that 14-quarter stretch. Not great. Not great. Here's here's the, the troubling thought if you're a South Carolina fan moving forward, knowing that quarterback play is probably going to um, – look like it's at a really high level anytime your defense is on the field moving forward, okay? Graham Mertz and Will Rogers. Both of them came into Williams-Brice, threw for over 400 yards. And remember, we're talking about Will Rogers in this offense this year with Kevin Barbet, which he has struggled with that transition. And for the vast majority of the season, he has not looked comfortable. You know where he looked comfortable? Williams-Brice Stadium against South Carolina defense. That's not great. Not great. I think this week, probably this would be a good point in the season to do this. Um, just as I did last year, I'm going to do my uh, dudes who deserve better team. I'm just going to give you a little spoiler. Spencer Rattler's the quarterback of that. He is. If you're still dogging him, you're not watching him. Really simple. He is having the type of year where if he were on... Oh man, what's what's a good team to come up with? This is probably a bad example because the offense, it's not really built this way. But like if Spencer Rattler were on Utah right now, the things that he could be doing and the way that we'd be talking about that program, man, 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 man. Even if Spencer Rattler were on Ohio State with some of the offensive issues that they've had here and there, and I know that they've been much better in the second half, a little bit of... Midwest Georgia with some of the things that they've done this year. If he were on one of those teams, the conversation would just be night and day. It it really would. He is doing things 
that I've waited so long to see from him. And his guys trust him too. That's that's the tough thing. He, it used to be, and look, he's going to have a couple of those moments with the way that this team is set up, with how many points they're allowing on the defensive side of the ball, where if you're just going to look at the box score and you're going to see the one or two interceptions and you see the way that he's trying to make plays late when they're, when they're down in a key spot, and it's like, look, he has to throw it up to, to somebody to try and make a play. He's got some of that still, and it's probably going to hinder some of his numbers. I, I guess I get it. But man, there are a lot of teams right now that would be in a much better place if they had Spencer Rattler as their quarterback. And I'm not saying that, look, he shouldn't go into South Carolina. That's not what I'm saying. He's thriving in part because of Dow Loggins and the presence that he has had in that offense and because of some of his surroundings and Xavier Leggett becoming a great player. How about Mario Anderson becoming a great player? Did not see that one coming. Did not see that one coming. That hurdle that he had. Whew. I think Peter Burns dropped the line. It was uh, Super Mario. That's That's what it was. I like that. Every time he hurdles, we need to call him Super Mario. That's that's a good one. But um, I'm going to officially take the L and say that South Carolina is eliminated from second place in the SEC East. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's not happening. I should have probably listened to my South Carolina people in July when I told them, yeah, like I think I'm going to have the Gamecocks second in the East. And they're like, really? We think this team is six and six. Turns out they might have been onto something. They, they might have been on something. Florida, on the other hand, win number five, desperately, desperately needed that, knowing what awaits on that schedule. Remember, you got bye week coming up, then Georgia and Jacksonville, obviously. Home against Arkansas, at LSU, at Mizzou, home against Florida State. No gimmies, none. And if you want to say that home against Arkansas is a gimme, I'd say eh, you probably didn't watch that noon game and watch them play Alabama down to the wire. I'll continue to bang the drum that Arkansas is pro I know you are what your record says you are, but Arkansas, some of the things that they're doing, they're not as flawed of a team as you might think when you look at their record. That is by no means a, a sleeper game that they, that Florida can show up and have a C minus effort and expect to be able to win. I think that man, like Florida will hit the, hit the over on five and a half wins. I'm going to, I'll, I'll Go on record, say that now. But even, even with what we just saw from them on the road, finally looking like what you would hope offensively away from the swamp, I still feel pretty good about seven and five for the regular season. And getting eight and five, if they're able to do that in a bowl game with the experience that they should have coming back, considering that I can't remember who had this stat, so apologies for it, but Florida has played. Coming into this week, they played more true freshmen of any FBS program. If they make a couple of moves in the portal, the vibes surrounding Florida, Billy Napier as a whole, have a chance to be much, much different than what some would have expected at this time last week. There, there is that world. Eight and four could possibly happen for this team. Um, I think that they would still probably have to win a game that they're not supposed to in order to be able to get there. But... This was a game that they weren't supposed to be able to win. You were an underdog on the road. This, These are the types of games you need to start racking up if you were going to show that you were truly making that progress. Florida did that. Love what we saw from Graham Mertz down the stretch. Big, big-time win for Billy Napier. If you saw the post-game video, you saw him jumping around, celebrating. Not a guy that typically does that. Not a rah-rah type guy. I think he knew what that one meant. It's a good thing his team got over seven and a half hours of sleep on Wednesday night. All right, Bama. Arkansas. <laughs> Saban's 
200th win was one of the strangest. <laughs> it was weird. Really weird. If you watch this game, you might have turned it off when it was 24 to 6. Bama was cruising. Final minutes of the third quarter. Looked like they were about to get the ball back. At that point in the game, I think it was like 340 left or something. Arkansas was trying to get a first down for the first time since the first quarter. <laughs> they couldn't do anything. I tweeted at that time as they look like they're going through another three and out. I tweeted that I would rather spend an afternoon with that dumb steer Bebo than watch this Arkansas offense. It was that bad. But then like minutes after I, after I tweeted that, Jalen Key face mask, it gave Arkansas first down. That kind of woke them up. 15 consecutive points. It was a totally new ball game. We got some vintage KJ in this one. The play where he shook off Terry and Arnold, man. That's the stuff. Nobody can shake off a dude and keep a play alive like KJ Jefferson. Nobody. Saban said that play afterwards was one of the best that he had ever seen. I need the four minute and he had like some reference that he botched about like uh what was it like a, a gnat off of a cow or something like that. He's like anybody that could do that to a college player at this level, that's that's unbelievable. I, I just need somebody to cut up the four minutes that we've had of KJ in his career doing exactly that. I need maybe it's not four minutes long, maybe it's more like three minutes, whatever. He he's got plenty of them plenty of those plays and whenever I feel like man it sucks to watch this Arkansas offense right now because those moments are still going to be there for the rest of the regular season probably and I'm thinking to myself some very dark thoughts of like I'd rather spend my afternoon with Bevo than watch Arkansas play offense when I'm thinking those dark thoughts I can just come back to that three minute four minute highlight clip of KJ shaking off dudes that's that's what I can do that, that would put me in a much happier place. I know Arkansas fans would feel a lot better if they had that at their disposal. If that's out there, tweet it at me. I'll retweet it. That's that's the type of content that I need on the app formerly known as Twitter. I thought when Jalen Milrow threw that pass over the middle, second down, Bama's clinging to the three-point lead all of a sudden. He's facing pressure. I thought that was going to get picked off and Arkansas was going to have a chance to come back and win. I really did. And that did not happen. They end up getting the first down in that play. Bama holds on. 76 consecutive wins at home against unranked teams. So much fight for Arkansas. If you came into this one questioning that like I did, who wasn't questioning that? If you weren't questioning that, you're living in a different world than the rest of us. I'll say that. It would have been really easy for that Arkansas team to throw in the towel. You're staring at your fifth consecutive loss. You don't have Rocket Sanders. KJ's getting killed. The defense was gashed twice in the first half. It felt like shades of that secondary that couldn't stop a nosebleed last year. And they kept fighting. They kept fighting. And while there are no moral victories, I get it. I get it. It's another one score loss for Sam Pittman. I, I understand that. Man. It beats the alternative. What if we're talking right now about Arkansas losing that game 42 to six? Because that's the direction that was heading. It really was. And if that team is just saying, man, ship has sailed on this season. We're not going to play in a Florida bowl game like we did a couple years ago. This is 
Liberty Bowl at best. Maybe I should look into the portal. Why am I going to go, you know, try and be in the right place at the right time? Trust these new coordinators. Listen to them. Let me just do my thing and help myself for the for my own future. If, if that had been the mindset, Arkansas gets killed. They do. And instead, they made that an actual football game. And I don't think, despite the frustration, I get it. I get it because it's still a loss for Arkansas. Sam Pittman doesn't have a week of answering questions about if his team is still locked in. And that's pretty rare for a two and five team with five consecutive losses. Okay. I'll say that. So that's the good news for Arkansas. It's it, it's going to be difficult to put them away. I think let's just assume that moving forward. Even if Arkansas is sitting there two and six or two and seven and bull eligibility is off the table, I still think they're going to be a really tough team to be able to put away based on what we've seen from them so far in these spots, you know, at LSU, at Alabama, where it felt like just the deck was stacked against them and they have shown up. They deserve credit for that. I don't know that you're really changing your opinion of Bama after watching that. Are you? This is more of the same. It, it really is. The stat that I brought up so many times, so many times over the course of the last year. Coming into this season, Bama had played in 16 SEC games in the previous two seasons. Basically all but one game with Bryce Young as the starter. In those 16 SEC games in 2021 and 2022, 12 of them were one-score games in the fourth quarter. This season, three of four games in SEC play, one-score games in the fourth quarter. They're just continuing that pace. So 15 of Bama's last 20 SEC games were one-score games in the fourth quarter. That's not the Bama that we have come to know in the Nick Saban era. Get it? But Bama's still 17-3 and in SEC play since the start of 2021. They're 4-0 this year. If you're Bama, you'll take that all day, every day. I don't know what Tommy Reese was thinking by deviating from the run, especially after Jason McClellan looked awesome. The guy leads the SEC in, in broken tackles, and he is starting to look like the all-bang-the-drum player that I thought he he was worthy of being coming into this year. But, man, Jalen Milrow in the second half of that game, I, I joked we joked on the preview pod, he's going to have more than – what, three passing yards in the second half of this one? Uh, it was close. Three of 11 for 23 passing yards in the second half for Jalen Milrow. Bama allowed five sacks in this one. Sixth consecutive game allowing at least four sacks. They had this on SEC final. That is the first time that's happened to any SEC team in the last 20 years. That's wild. But this is who Bama is. This is who Bama is. It's going to happen. You're you're limited with your offensive potential if you have drive-killing plays like that. We won't assume that you're going to all of a sudden mold into this team that's going to start pass protecting at a super high level and you're going to put up 45 points a game. No, no, no. That, that's just – let's roll that out. That's, that's not happening. I don't know who's still holding on to hope that's going to be the case, but it's just not. This is a week-to-week team, and Bama – is not good enough to take its foot off the gas. I think it took its foot off the gas a little bit. I'm not saying that this was, oh man, they they totally mailed it in. They thought this game was absolutely over. I'm not going to go and make that assertion unless I'm on the sideline and I'm seeing that true lack of effort and I'm seeing a team that looks like it thinks the game is already over. I'm not, I'm not going to put myself out there and say that. But yeah, I mean, 
when you let a team like Arkansas back into that game, of course, we're going to connect those dots. That's that, that is reality. And Nick Saban was clearly frustrated afterwards. He's like, look, I told everybody, this is a hard nose Arkansas team. They're coached by Sam Pittman. They're not just going to mail it in. And he was like, I don't know how, how else I could have communicated. Apparently I didn't communicate that well enough. Totally get that. The good news for Bama did not have that deadly turnover. That was the difference in this game. Their margin for error is slim. If they had had that costly turnover down the stretch, whew, that, that, that could have been a colossal collapse. I'll say this ahead of the massive Tennessee Bama showdown next week, wherein a couple of one loss teams are going to probably be pretty desperate. I would assume I am very interested in that battle with Bama's offensive line against that Tennessee defensive front. Not saying as I sit here on Sunday morning that I'm going to go ahead and predict a Tennessee upset. Not saying that. Tennessee's winning that battle. They they are winning that battle. And I'm won that battle. Bama had to mix things up offensively. I think they will definitely have to do that against Tennessee in order to try and neutralize that really, really good front. I would assume that streak is still going to find a way to continue. Will it be the difference in the game? We'll wait and see. Okay, strange Saturday. Georgia holding on uh, at Vandy, but losing Brock Bowers. Let's start with the, the Bowers part of this. Strange Saturday was watching Brock Bowers be human and get hurt. Didn't like that. Did not like that. Low ankle sprain was the early diagnosis. Negative x-rays. They still need an MRI. That's what Kirby was saying. Didn't look like a freak play or anything like that. I guess freakish was having... Bowers run a reverse and you don't typically do that with your tight end, but it wasn't like he got his leg rolled up on by blocking a tackle, you know, stepped on his foot or something, nothing, nothing like that, but take it for what it is. When a guy slams his, his fist into the turf as it happens, I, I, and I was tweeting out like, Hey, I hope like, please let that be a cramp or something like that. You're not usually doing that with a cramp. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to pretend I know exactly what's going on. We're going to get more clarity on that. But I usually, that that makes me worried. I'll, I'll just say that. That makes me more worried when I see a guy that is significantly frustrated. And he's like, crap, this something definitely just happened. And we're going to wait and see kind of the severity of that. Um, but this is a really good time to have a bye week if you're Georgia. Really, really good time. You lose Xavier Trust in this one as well. You hope that they're going to be able to return from the bye week. But at the same time, it's a reminder of why it's hard for a tight end to remain in the Heisman Trophy conversation. Just the physicality of the position. It's like a catcher in Major League Baseball trying to become MVP. It's really hard. It, it, it just is with, with the nature and the physicality that these guys are wired, that they're supposed to be able to have play in, play out. Even the physicality that you're supposed to run with when you have the football in your hands, all those things. Do I think Georgia would be fine without Bowers if they missed him for the Florida game and maybe even the Mizzou game? Probably. But do I say that as confidently as I would have last year? No way. Absolutely not. Their offense is built around him. And right now, as Carson Beck is finding those advantages, that's that's what I'll say, finding the advantages that Bowers gives you on a weekly basis. It seems like Carson Beck, Mike Bobo, all three of those guys are really on the same page with how to maximize his abilities. It's frustrating to have a setback like 
this. And hopefully, 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 Bowers isn't going to miss significant time, but obviously we'll have more on that during the week. The game itself was strange too. Really strange. Vandy attempted a two-point conversion to try and make it a one-score game in the fourth quarter. And if not for Carson Beck demolishing CJ Taylor on that play, we're like, wait a minute, what? What just what what? Shout out to Vandy though for scoring a touchdown against Georgia for the first time in five years, right? Did that a few times, three touchdowns. Probably a little bit closer than what that final score indicated. Still a three-score win for Georgia. Again, like beating Kentucky the way that Georgia did, it didn't guarantee that Georgia was about to steamroll everyone. And I know, hand up, like I had Georgia winning this game 42-6. to I was wrong on that. Totally get it. I didn't think that we would see some of the mental errors from Georgia where it was London Humphreys taking advantage of, of a coverage bust that Georgia has early on. Not used to seeing that in, in the Carson Beck pick late that I just mentioned there. Um, I, I thought we were going to get more. I thought we were going to get Brock Vandegrift playing, playing snaps in this game. Uh, that did not prove to be the case. I expect by the time people are listening to this, Georgia will have lost first place votes as the number one team in college football. Having said that, I don't expect anyone to be referencing that game a month and a half from now or two months from now, right? If Georgia loses in the semifinal or, or something like that, anything that comes up short of a national championship, I don't expect us to say, you know what, we should have we should have known based on the way that bandy game went. I don't think that will be the case. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And again, this is three of four SEC games that have not gone according to plan, and the slow starts have happened. But at the same time, it's all about getting through 12-0, it's about playing your best ball at the exact right time. When you, when you have been there the way that Georgia has, that's going to continue to be the mindset. That's the thing that Kirby Smart is working against, trying to avoid those colossal injuries, trying to make sure that you're a team that isn't just good because the scoreboard says you're good. You're good because your own standard says you're good. They had to work against that last year. I think they had to work against that a little bit in 2021. I think the schedule is actually going to end up looking better than what some anticipated. Maybe that game against Tennessee will feel really, really important, and Tennessee will be in the top 15. Um, who knows? That Mizzou game is looking a little bit different. That Florida game is looking a little bit different. I'm not saying that it, it matters overall for the Georgia resume, but just in terms of teams that can actually push you, we're certainly not going into November or, or, or anything like that having 2018 Bama vibes of man, this team hasn't played a meaningful fourth quarter game. That is totally off the table. I think Georgia at this point isn't overly concerned about style points. They just want to make sure that they are a football team that has that upside that can be healthy at the exact right time. But yes, this game was strange and it was strange to see Georgia struggle to pull away uh, in a setting that they have just absolutely dominated year after year. All right, let's talk Tiger Bowl, the game that I was hoping to be able to talk to with Will. We'll get maybe more of a breakdown uh, of this one on Wednesday. I had said to Will in the preview pod, Will, there's going to be a moment in the second half of this game where you're going to be asking yourself, is this the time that Hugh Freeze is going to win that game that he's not supposed to win? 
dead wrong on that one. <laughs> dead wrong on that. Strange Saturday was this game not being strange. That That's really what this was. The Tiger Bowl not getting weird. That, that, that to me, like among the weirdest things that happened in the SEC on Saturday. Harold Perkins kind of single-handedly prevented that. I thought at a key moment in that game where it, it's 20-7, to 7, Auburn is driving early in the third quarter, LSU needs a stop badly, or else you kind of wonder about the here-we-go-again mindset with that defense. And you had Perkins lined up in, in nickel, and then he gets uh, a hurry and a sack, and both both plays, he's like untouched. What a concept to be able to let him pin his ears back and get after the quarterback. Credit Matt House for being able to recognize that Harold Perkins is really good at rushing the passer mid-October. They figured that out. Good for them. Um, here's the good news for Auburn. No longer can we get on these airwaves or any airwaves and say, hey, you know what would be cool is if Auburn could pass for 100 yards against Power 5 competition. That is no more. First time that has happened in the post-Brian Harson era. Feels weird to call it an era considering people have AC filters that are used longer than Brian Harson was on the planes, but I digress. 154 passing yards for Auburn. Season high against Power 5 competition. Uh, LSU secondary, though, still got the last lap and still probably was the something that had to give that didn't give. Zai Alexander played really, 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 really well in this one in coverage was kind of the, the, I hate to say lockdown corner that they needed, but stepped up in that spot. Brian Kelly gave him a shout out afterwards. Brian Kelly said that they were figuring things out defensively. I think they're figuring out that playing Auburn is great and playing our playing army next week is also great. I think that'll be a nice little confidence boost for your secondary. I'm not all of a sudden expecting this group to look like it's at, at an elite level among SEC defenses. Jaden Daniels Heisman watch. He only helped himself on Saturday with his performance. He is right now, as we head into the midway point of the season, as we pass the midway point of the season, I should say, he is second in the country in touchdowns responsible for with 26. He's third in FBS in passing yards per game with 328. That to me is really impressive. I did not think he would be getting there this year. He is third among FBS quarterbacks in rushing yards per game with 73.6. He's been great. He continues to defy my expectations. I did not think he had that upside. He absolutely, he, he is going to be in that conversation at the end of the season as one of these guys who, look, I know LSU's had a lot of great ones, and he's not he's, he's not going to be at Joe Burrow levels of, of icon or, any, or anything like that. But when we look back on the great LSU skill players of the 21st century, of what this program has become in the last two decades plus, Jaden Daniels is going to belong in that conversation. I'm, I'm telling you right now, the things that he is doing it is so fun to watch. It really, really is. And it's frustrating that it's not done with these massive implications that we thought were possible coming into this season. But if you are dismissing him from national recognition, from Heisman Trophy conversations because of that, because of LSU has that second loss, you're just telling on yourself. That's, that's lazy in my opinion. There are not five people at the quarterback position playing 
at a level that Jaden Daniels is. There's no doubt about it. It's so frustrating to think about the September that LSU had figuring out its defense when we felt like the, there were at least enough pieces there where I'm, look, even if LSU had played Harold Perkins in his right spot, LSU probably still has a loss. They still had those issues in the secondary. It still was a little bit more of a slow start for Mason Smith. And he wasn't Jalen Carter the second he stepped onto the football field coming off the injury. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, and, you know, some of the injuries that they dealt with, with spades and like, I, I get it. Okay. I, I do, but man, <clears throat> LSU has to be frustrated knowing how great Daniels has been and knowing that this team, as Brian Kelly said afterwards, like they can play with anybody. They, they absolutely could. That's the good news for LSU is that this game did not get weird. As for Auburn still have bull hopes alive. Um, but I wouldn't bet the farm on that. I wouldn't. It's, it's going to be really difficult if they don't figure some things out in the passing game. You can't consistently be that bad, that bad. I mean, it, it is really, really rough. And defensively, I actually think that they're going to be able to continue to hold their own. Eugene Asante, Jalen Simpson, like these guys are having great, great years on the back end. And, and, and they're going to they're gonna give some teams some problems. They, they really will. But still, um, Auburn feels like it is climbing an uphill battle. And they still lack that offensive identity that they really, really need in order to kind of keep their head above water in the West. Um, all right, let's close out with Mizzou making the statement that it did at Kentucky. So I'm, I'm going to start with the, the Kentucky side of this. My brother and sister-in-law were, were at this game. My brother texted me in the midst of Kentucky's 14-0 start about how great the atmosphere is. And, and I'll bang that drum. If anybody dogs Kroger field or says that it's not like a, uh, like a really good atmosphere. I'll say like, okay, so you just, you haven't been there. Like if you've not seen them play at night, you know, it's, they really get fired up for this version of Kentucky. And there, there's no, Oh, we've turned the page to basketball. That, that is not what this fan base is about um, at, at this stage of the Mark Stoops era. And when Kentucky is, is rolling like that, the offense is moving, good vibes are back. It's like, Hey, the Georgia loss, that was, you know, that was a one-off. That's what it looked like early on for Kentucky. By the end of the night, that looked like a late November Maction crowd on a school night. Bad, real bad. That's usually the byproduct of letting the visiting team go on a 38-7 to run to end the game. That fake punt changed everything. Heck of a call in that spot for Eli Drinkowitz. Instead of thinking... Kentucky is about to get the ball back up 14-0, maybe have a chance to go up three scores, put Mizzou in a spot that it really hasn't been in all year. Luke Bauer, the Mizzou punter, just drops a dime on the left sideline of Marquise Johnson. Mizzou just totally takes off, took the soul right out of that stadium, and Kentucky totally collapsed in this one. Here's a wild thought. Luther Burden had two catches for 15 yards. That's the nation's leader in receptions and receiving yards. Got a little banged up, but he came back into this one. Cody Schrader, uh, one of the leading rushers in the SEC. I think he was second in the SEC in rushing behind Ray Davis coming into this one, if I'm not mistaken. 20 carries, 71 yards. Contained him pretty well. Brady Cook, six yards per attempt in this one. Mizzou won by three scores. That's credit to the Mizzou defense. Huge bounce back week, I, I thought, for, for Blake Baker's group. 
also credit to uh, a Kentucky team that is just not disciplined at all whatsoever. I think Mizzou gets credit for putting them in some of those spots, but man, Kentucky melted down. They melted down. This game was like a microcosm of Kentucky season. They get way too confident and then they self combust at every single turn. Kentucky had 14 penalties for 122 yards at home at home. How does that happen? They just, they are a maddening football team to watch. They really are. Devin Leary was once again, not good. Don't think that was the weather either. Even when it felt like he was good, usually Kentucky would have a a holding penalty or something like that to call back any sort of chunk play that he had. Drops didn't help him. I know not all that is on Devin Leary. I'm not saying that it is, but you could look at the box score and say, well, why didn't Ray Davis run more? They, they look pretty good. Why didn't Liam Cohen have him running 30 times in that football game? Wasn't that their best plan? Yeah, maybe there's some of that. But the issue is that Kentucky would have all these negative plays or they would have inefficient plays on first down. And then they're looking up at third and 10 or something like, all right, well, yeah, you got to throw the ball again. I guess that's the way this works. Just really embarrassing for Kentucky to look that bad at home against anyone. But to look that bad at home against a Mizzou team who hadn't won at Kroger Field since 2013. After Mark Soups is saying, hey, fans, you got to pony up if you want more talent. That is a bad, bad loss, man. No other way to spin it. It's also really bad because of the point that I kept bringing up in the preseason why I couldn't get there with Kentucky as the second-place team in the SEC East. They needed to be 6-1 and one going into this final five-game stretch, and they're not. This is going to really define this team, how they respond from this. I mean, you know what? Actually, you know what? Scrap that. I, I don't even want to say that because that's not, not, that's not fair. They haven't been good. They haven't been good. The wrong team was ranked coming into this one. It was. I think even Kentucky fans would admit that. It's bad. It's really, really bad. They don't have much of an identity. Even when they do some things well defensively, they, 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 have, they have bad penalties pass interference calls and offsides here. They give the offense a free play there. It's like, man, like it just feels like a group that always is on the verge of a significant mistake. That's, that's who Kentucky is. And you don't really know when or how it's going to happen, but you just know that it's going to happen. I'm going to get to some Mizzou praise in a second here, but I think, I think Mark Stoops hates the way that he felt like he had to construct this roster. I think that's driving him nuts right now. The Devin Leary experience has not been a good one. I think Stoops hates how much he has to rely on balance to win in this era of college football. And I think he would prefer to be a ground heavy team like the one that he had in the 2010s. I bet if Mark Stoops could call up Benny Snell and be like, hey, let's just get back to running the football. Chris Rodriguez, you still got eligibility left. You want to come back and we'll just run the football and run the ball 45 times a game. We'll have Terry Wilson be our quarterback and just do that. I think there's a part of Mark Stoops that would be like, yep, sign me up. And that's not a knock at Liam Cohen and the concepts that he's brought to the table because, look, Kentucky had its best offense in 14 years when Liam Cohen stepped in in 2021 and they did the overhaul that they did. But seeing the shortcomings of this group, you're reminded that it can be frustrating when it's not working. Really, really frustrating. When you got to rely on those young receivers the way that Kentucky has – Man, it is just uh, it is a brutal, brutal thing to watch. I think Kentucky fans felt like Mark Stoops need to, needs to probably pony up, make some adjustments, or else his team has Liberty Bowl written all over it.
That's reality. Speaking of bowls, Mizzou, bowl eligible in mid-October. How about it, man? How about it? So impressed with this team. And you can be disappointed in who Kentucky has become and also impressed with Mizzou at the same time. They did not let the LSU loss or even the awful start in Lexington stop them. And Drink was saying in the postgame with Cole how, like, yeah, this team needed to start off well or else it was going to be really, really rough. You wonder about the emotional toll of losing that lead late to LSU, how that was going to impact this team. And Drink was actually wrong about his own team's performance and the grittiness that they showed to be able to not just put their head down on the road, down 14 to nothing, but to be able to find a way to come back and win, find a way to come back and win convincingly. Did not play a complete game and they still won by 17 on the road. That is not something we often say about a lot of teams in the SEC, especially not not for Mizzou. Drink's only road wins to date as a head coach at Mizzou came against South Carolina and Vandy. Think about that. This was his best road win of his career, in my opinion, just because of how much that place emptied out when it was fired up, ready to go. And there are not a lot of Kentucky people that that are very fond of the electric wits. I can tell you that. I, I think Mizzou is the most improved team in the SEC, and I don't really think there's much debate. I really don't. Florida is probably in that conversation as well. I think Florida, we're going to base that depending on how they finish out this schedule. And some of that could be said about Mizzou as well. But it's kind of amazing what happens when you return that much production, second in the country in percentage of returning production, the way that Mizzou was, the great stat that Bill Connolly puts together that I referenced throughout this offseason. And don't get it twisted. I was, look, Mizzou has already hit the projection that I had. I had a six and six projection. So I was way too low on them, way, way too low. But it's amazing what happens when you've got two coordinators that you trust and you've got depth in key spots. I think Mizzou is a Florida bowl team and they're going to go to a Florida bowl. I think they win at least two more games on that regular season schedule and maybe three in case you don't have it pulled up right in front of you. That is home against South Carolina at Georgia, home against Tennessee, home against Florida at Arkansas. I mean, look, at Georgia, that's the only one that you're looking at. And even Georgia fans are watching Mizzou right now saying, that game's going to be not easy. <laughs> not, not, not a walk in the park, especially after the way that last year played out with a much lesser Mizzou team. But you're looking at that schedule if you're a Mizzou fan going, we can handle that. We, we have the team that can actually handle that. And when you win in that style, and when you're able to find unique ways to pull yourself out, when it looks like things are working against you. To me, that's the testament to a group that is showing confidence, that is putting trust in their coaches, that is not self-combusting in these key spots and having awful penalties and stuff like that, much like what we saw with Kentucky. And Mizzou is taking that next step as a program. How high will that next step be? Will it be a, a nine and three regular season? Will it be a 10 and two regular season? I, I don't think we can rule that out. I don't think we can rule that out. And that is not something I thought I'd be saying at this point of the season. All right, let's close with a little Yarna. I was admittedly not able to stay up for the entirety of the Colorado uh, game against Stanford. Went to bed when Colorado was up 14 to nothing, as I'm sure many people did. Okay, hand up. I know I pride myself on being able to watch 
as much football as humanly possible. I want to be able to break these teams down, not just go with the echo chamber or anything like that. But and ahead of a Saturday, look, your boy needed to be able to get to sleep by 1045 on, on, on Friday night, make sure that we were ready to go for Saturday. Uh, did not see them blowing a 29-point lead and losing to Stanford at home. Did not see that in the cards. So, Yarna, Colorado will miss a bowl game. Mm. Remaining schedule. At UCLA, home against Oregon State, home against Arizona, an Arizona team that just waxed Washington State. At Washington State, at Utah. Got to get two of those to get to a bowl game. So the reason why that that win total was stuck at what six and a half, I want to say, why it didn't all of a sudden go to eight or something crazy. Even looking back on the the segment that we did about what would Colorado's record be in the SEC, and I was saying I could see them being being seven and five with the pieces that they have on offense. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna back off that one a little bit. Might have even seven and five might have gotten a little bit ahead of my skis. Pretty flawed defense. Not really a, a bold take. That's just the only takeaway from watching them play football. Uh, a lot of people probably enjoyed waking up on Saturday morning and seeing Dion humbled a bit. I think Dion deserves credit for being able to wear sunglasses as long as he does in night games. I really do. Has anybody ever tried to wear sunglasses at night as long as Dion does? It's a rare skill. Anyway, that's a positive spin zone for Colorado. I think they could miss a bowl game. I really could. And that's because I think the Pac-12 is solid it's deep those teams on the remaining schedule man mm. especially arizona all right mississippi state beating arizona also looks like a much better win and i know that they've had uh, a change at the quarterback position but um or they, they they had to deal with injuries there but still man that is that is a brutal brutal remaining schedule for colorado um even though that they have even though they have travis hunter back and he looked phenomenal on friday night Y'all or not, Caleb Williams just cost himself another Heisman. I don't think he did, despite how bad it was for USC in their first loss of the season against Notre Dame. Threw three picks in the first half of this one. Um, Primetime game, rivalry game. Here's the bigger issue. He was, his Heisman path to be able to repeat, do something that hadn't been done in the sport nearly half a century, his path involved USC getting to the playoff. Do we think his USC team is getting to the playoff? Because I don't. No way. Mm-mm. Not with how good that conference is. Can't get on board with that. And I think you see against a, a Notre Dame team that's built like a Big Ten team, the physicality, it's the same stuff. I don't know. By the end of this sentence, Lincoln Riley's probably given our, uh, another extension to Alex Grinch or something like that. And, they're going to find a way to just accept this moving forward. But no, I, I think while Caleb Williams certainly took a step back and Michael Penix took a huge step forward with his performance, beating Oregon the way that he did. I don't think that we can rule him out for that just yet. I really don't because I still think the path is, is out there. And if that playoff path exists for USC in the conversations we could be having I think that's still on the table. I mean, let's remember the guy suffered loss number two, had the nails painted for, you know, for the Pac-12 championship with, you know, F Utah and, and collapsed the way that he did. And still we all looked up and we're like, yeah, okay, Williams is probably still the best option to be able to win the Heisman trophy. 
Um, so let's not totally dismiss it after one loss, but my guess right now, if I had to make a prediction as we sit here in mid-October, would be that Caleb Williams will be invited to New York. He will probably not be able to repeat. All right. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Sat Down South, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Thank <laughs> you.